Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Today is Monday. It is the 13th of June. This is Here First. From IPR News, I'm Michael Leland. Governor Kim Reynolds is making it clear if she's re-elected, she'll again push to give taxpayer support to parents who send their children to private schools. During a speech at the Iowa GOP State Convention this weekend, Reynolds aired a litany of complaints about public schools. Drag shows for young kids, pornographic books in school libraries, elementary school lessons on pronouns, and sadly, the list goes on. This has to stop. The Group 1 Iowa Action issued a statement a few hours later saying the governor's remarks were inflammatory and targeting LGBTQ youth. Iowa Democrats hold their state convention Saturday in Des Moines. The number of black students and white students suspended from Cedar Rapids Public High Schools this past academic year is virtually the same, despite black students making up only 18 percent of the district population. The Cedar Rapids Gazette reports the suspension data was released Friday as the district continues looking at school safety. The school board's reviewing disparities in how students are disciplined for allegations of crimes and rules violations. It's part of a presentation to the school board as members prepare to vote later today on a new contract to keep school resource officers police in schools. Governor Reynolds has announced a $20 million grant for nonprofits in the state. IPR's Catherine Wheeler reports it's aimed at expanding services. The $20 million for the Nonprofit Innovation Fund comes from the American Rescue Plan and targets nonprofits with infrastructure projects. Grant awards will range between $500,000 and $3 million. Paul Thielen is the director of the Larnard A. Waterman Iowa Nonprofit Resource Center at the University of Iowa. He says nonprofits of all sizes have had a diverse range of challenges during the pandemic, from keeping up revenue to turnover and burnout among employees. Thielen says nonprofits are still impacted from the financial challenges during the pandemic. The demand is, is definitely out there. And so, yes, I think that there are going to be organizations that receive these funds. And to those organizations, this funding is going to mean a whole lot uh, to them and to those that that they serve. The grant application window opens on June 27th. Wheat supplies are being hit with a double whammy overseas and here in the U.S. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembers reports on challenges and how they'll affect grocery store prices. Russia's invasion cut off Ukrainian grain exports, and now a drought is choking out wheat harvests in Kansas and parts of Oklahoma and Nebraska. The supply crunch means shoppers may see slight price increases for things like bread and pasta says Joseph Glauber with the International Food Policy Research Institute. As far as I know, people have been able to find grain. The question is, how, how much are you willing to pay for it? And I think that, you know, for poor countries, that may be an issue. The strain will be felt even more acutely in places like Egypt and Yemen, which rely on wheat imports from other countries. The last of eight properties that Potawatomi County bought last year as part of a flood buyback project has been demolished. Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil reports the county got federal and state money to buy and tear down the properties in flooded areas. One of the eight properties will go to the county's conservation group for future river access. 
The other seven will be offered as land leases for agriculture to adjoining property owners. Iowa is among 12 Mississippi River states that will share $60 million from the federal government to help control farm runoff and other pollution that contribute to a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. That money comes from the infrastructure law that President Biden signed in November. The EPA's assistant administrator for water made the announcement Friday in Des Moines. It's here first from IPR News. I'm Michael Leland. Vehicle donations are a powerful way to fuel the programming you love on IPR. If you've got a clunker or a classic that you've been considering parting ways with, visit IPR.org vehicle to learn more. Sickle cell disease is the most common genetic disorder in the U.S. It affects nearly 100,000 people, but it's often overlooked when it comes to resources. Side effects Public Media's Farah Yusri reports many believe that's because the vast majority of sickle cell patients are black. Gary Gibson heads the Martin Center Sickle Cell Initiative in Indianapolis, a nonprofit that provides non-clinical services for patients. That includes this food pantry, where he carefully stacks up cans of beans. Gary says supplies fly off the shelves because the need is so great. find vegetables, you're going to find meats. Typically, it looks like all the meats are gone. You're still left with vegetables, and then we have another fridge. Gary is 69 and has been doing this work for nearly four decades. It all started when he met a girl at a mixer in college. Basically, as soon as we met, you know, she said, um, you know, my name is Brenda. I have sickle cell disease. Just like that. I was like, sickle what? At the time, he had no clue what sickle cell disease was. But he had plenty of clues that Brenda Williams was the girl of his dreams. I'll never forget the very first time that I saw her in crisis. Um, It just tore my heart right out of my chest. Sickle cell is a genetic disease that causes red blood cells to change from the regular donut shape most of us have to the shape of a banana or a sickle. The sickle cells clump up, making it harder to flow and carry oxygen to major organs. That can cause excruciating pain crises, like the one Brenda had that day. Gary remembers he drove more than three hours to Detroit to visit Brenda in the hospital. He rushed up to her room, sat down beside her, and put his hand on the hospital bed, which made the bed move just a tiny bit. And she screamed and hollered and said, don't do that, in a very, very strong voice. And I was like, don't do what? And she was like, don't touch the bed, it hurts. And to think about the fact that she was in that much pain and watch how it was tearing her apart, it started tearing me apart. These pain crises can happen at any time and frequency, from triggers as simple as cold weather or the stresses of life. Every patient is different, but one thing in common, chronic pain is the soundtrack to their lives. U.S. physicians first understood sickle cell disease over a century ago, when a doctor in Illinois observed the blood cells of a black dentistry student, suffering unexplained pains. The disease quickly became labeled as a black disease. Some say that's why progress to manage and treat it has been slow. You could say sickle cell patients face a double whammy of structural racism. Being black means they're part of a group that's been handed the short end of the stick for generations when it comes to education and wealth accumulation. And the disease itself is debilitating, which makes it hard for many of them to complete school or keep a job. So more than half of all sickle cell patients are on some kind of public insurance, which typically pays doctors less than private insurers. 
As a result, fewer doctors choose to specialize in it, says Dr. Sophie Lanscron. She's a sickle cell disease physician at Johns Hopkins University. You can't just open, you know, open up, put up a shingle and open your door and say, I'm a sickle cell doc and expect to make a living. So it's mostly big academic centers like Hopkins that can sustain it. And that leaves proper care out of reach for most patients. The way we treat sickle cell patients today is like telling someone with cancer to get care from a non-specialist or the ER instead of an oncologist. Lanskarn says it's inadequate and unethical, yet many sickle cell patients do end up in the emergency rooms. And there... People just assume, ah, sickle, you throw some opioids, IV fluids, whatever, and you're done. But, you know, the disease is a lot more complicated. She says for other diseases that are as complex, ER doctors know to call up a specialist. But that often doesn't happen for sickle cell patients. I, you know, and I've had uh, patients of mine who have had really bad outcomes because no one bothered to pick up the phone. Something like this happened to Tanika Hoffman. She recalls the day stress about her grad school midterm triggered a sickle cell pain crisis, and she showed up at a nearby hospital in Philadelphia. My health deteriorated, um, could barely move, super weak. Uh, my family had to drive up from Maryland to discharge me against medical advice. Her family transferred her to another hospital where she received better care. But by that point, her hip bone had died. I like to explain it as like taking your finger and like slamming it in your car door repeatedly, right? And then going to the hospital and being told, you're not in pain. You're a liar. You're a drug addict. And then sitting hours in excruciating pain and then hoping that someone would take pity on you. This is common, says Marsha Treadwell. She's a psychologist and a sickle cell researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. She says black patients are often denied care because of implicit bias and individual racism. But the underlying problem is more systemic. So if you compare sickle cell disease with cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis affects about 30,000 people who are primarily white. And sickle cell disease affects 100,000 people who are primarily black and brown. The funding disparity is um, 10 times more to cystic fibrosis in, from federal funding. And the disparity is way worse for philanthropic funding. Treadwell says this slows down research and means less data is available for medical guidelines to help sickle cell patients get proper care. The healthcare system says we need evidence for these guidelines that you're putting forward, but you can't generate the evidence without proper funding. And it's easy to see the real-life impact of all this. Therapies for sickle cell disease are few and hard to come by. Gary's wife, Brenda, was part of a clinical trial in the 80s for the first-ever drug to help manage sickle cell disease. The drug hydroxyurea got FDA approval in the late 90s. It took 20 years before another drug was approved. Too little, too late for Brenda. Sickle cell patients in the U.S. typically die before the age of 50. Gary lost Brenda to sickle cell even earlier. She was 36. She was actually carrying twins when she passed away, and we lost both of them. Um, And so from my standpoint, sickle cell has taken three lives from me. That's why I'm a fighter for it, for people that have it. Part of that fight is for social justice, to make things more equitable for sickle cell patients today, and hopefully spare others the grief of losing someone they love far too soon. Farah Hisri, SideFX Public Media. That story is supported by a grant from the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, and it comes to us from SideFX Public Media, a regional reporting collaboration focused on public health. 
And this is Here First from IPR News. I'm Michael Leland. Have a great day.